0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As Ukraine's president receives a standing ovation from Congress and a billion dollars more in U.S. weapons for its conflict with Russia, the peace movement wants to tamp down the war hysteria in Congress.
1: Right now, I think we have to get narrower and focus on the things that can stop this from leading into a World War III. Stop it from getting to a nuclear war.
0: And in the face of corporate media's overwhelming war propaganda and demonization of Russia, peace activists say that a primary task is to still educate the American public about what is really happening in Ukraine.
2: Why did the U.S. push? And push and push, and and Putin kept saying this is a red line. I think it's because they wanted this. I think the US is actually very happy that Russia came in because they can unite Europe under the American military umbrella, they can evict Russia from the world economy, they weaken one of the principal competitors. It is, in fact, the beginning already of major power conflict.
0: All that this month's episode of the F-Word on fascism and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarim. While Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed Congress via video link on Wednesday, pleading for the U.S. and NATO to implement a so-called no-fly zone in his country and to, in effect, enter his war with Russia, in a no-fly zone, U.S. and NATO fighter jets would attempt to shoot down Russian jets and quickly create a scenario for World War III between the world's biggest nuclear powers. Oddly, Zelensky even evoked the name of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in pleading for American taxpayers to fund more weapons. I have a
3: dream. These words unknown to each of you today. I can say, I have a need. I need to protect uh, our sky. I need your decision, your help, which means exactly the same, the same you feel when you hear the words, I have a dream.
0: After the speech, President Biden continued to turn down the request for a no-fly zone, but announced that 800 million in additional weapons, including drones, would be sent to Ukraine. Though Biden referred to all of the advanced weaponry as defensive, it is also true that weapons such as anti-aircraft systems being transferred to Ukraine can be used offensively. And Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov has warned that the Russian military considers weapon shipments to Ukraine as legitimate targets. Also during the evening after Zelensky's speech before Congress, anti-war veterans brainstormed at a Busboys and Poets restaurant in Northwest D.C., about organizing against the war in Ukraine and against the NATO military alliance, which has expanded to Russia's Western border, thereby provoking the current war crisis. Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies said that NATO was formed to target the Soviet Union after World War II, and that it should have been disbanded after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991.
4: Instead of getting rid of NATO, when NATO was designed to suppress the Soviet Union, when there was no more Soviet Union, declare victory and go home. That should have been the the position. It wasn't, many of us remember those protests in 1991 of no to NATO starting then, that there's no reason for NATO. Instead, NATO became the arm of US intervention around the world. Instead of being just about Europe, suddenly we have NATO participating in the wars in Iraq to a smaller degree, to a massive degree in Afghanistan. And crucially in, in the run up to that in 1999, when the US wanted to go to war in Kosovo and realized it could not get permission from the UN Security Council because Russia would veto, they decided, well, we'll just go and ask NATO, as if anywhere in international law, the, the permission of, an, of a military alliance is somehow okay.
0: All three organizations participating in the evening the Answer Coalition, Code Pink Women for Peace, and the Institute for Policy Studies all have campaigns to educate the American public about the dangers of a so-called no-fly zone. Check their websites for more information. I'll have more from the program at Busboys After Headlines. Other international and national headlines this week. A prisoner at a Central Intelligence Agency black site in Afghanistan was used as a training prop to teach U.S. agents how to torture other prisoners, leaving the man with serious brain damage and other ailments, according to newly declassified documents published this week. According to the Common Dreams website, Amar al-Baluchi, a 44-year-old Kuwaiti national is currently imprisoned at the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for alleged involvement in plotting the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. The case, which has been delayed due to disputes over the admissibility of defendant testimony extracted through torture, has been in pretrial hearings for more than a decade. A series of earthquakes off the coast of Japan on Wednesday triggered a tsunami advisory just over 11 years after the region endured a major nuclear disaster. The strongest quake hit about 37 miles below the sea and left more than 2 million homes without electricity. The Japan Times reported that no abnormalities were found at the Fukushima plant. The Progressive Caucus in Congress listed 55 executive actions That President Biden could take since his domestic agenda has been scuttled by members of his own party. The actions include using existing administrative authority to cancel federal student loan debt, dramatically lowering the costs of essential drugs like insulin, hepatitis C drugs, HIV, AIDS drugs, extandi, epipens, and inhalers, and also stopping the expansion of private prisons to detain immigrants. In D.C., the Chicago Justice Project filed suit against the District of Columbia for the Metropolitan Police Department's failure to comply with the D.C. Freedom of Information Act. Over the last 13 years, the Metropolitan Police Department has built a gang database to secretly surveil D.C. residents, almost exclusively residents of color, and MPD uses it to determine where and whom to police. MPD's gang database has been subject to extensive recent public debate and media attention, highlighting systemic problems that disproportionately impact D.C. residents of color. Those problems include a high number of false positive entries, including infant children. The lawsuit was filed in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia and seeks a court order that the DC government must disclose the public records requested by the Chicago Justice Project and declare that MPD has violated the DC Freedom of Information Act. And also a virtual peace and justice teaching will be held Saturday, March 19th, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on the subject why Ukraine Should Matter to Faith Communities. It will be moderated by journalist Jacqueline Lukman and will include the speakers Medea Benjamin from Code Pink, Phil Willeto from the Odessa Solidarity Network, Reverend Sharon Granby-Sabukwe from Cultural Workers Bureau and Eastern University on why Black Christians should be anti-war in the Black radical tradition. Also, Santo Ora, who is currently in Ukraine, connected to Africans and other non-European students and immigrants. For more information and to register and attend, go to the website www.plymouth-ucc.org and go to the upcoming events tab and register. And that is the Plymouth Congregational Church here in Washington, D.C. And finally, in Culture and Media, Covert Action magazine writes that CIA Director William Burns admitted earlier this month that the U.S. is waging an information war against Russia. In an open Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, Burns claimed, quote, Putin is losing, end quote, that information war over Ukraine. He repeated the lie that the Russia invasion is unprovoked, despite the fact that he wrote himself in a 2008 leaked memo that NATO expanding to Ukraine and to Russia's border would provoke a war. And finally, on the weekend of March 12th, Maryland officially kicked off the celebration of the 200th birthday of abolitionist Harriet Tubman at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Tubman's great, great, great grandniece, Tina Wyatt, who participated in the program, spoke to WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. Wyatt shared her own recent writing to honor her enslaved great-great-great-grandmother, Soph, who was separated from her only infant child, but that child was eventually freed from enslavement by Soph's younger sister, who was Harriet Tubman.
3: I was telling her that she
0: didn't have to worry about her baby girl, And I said, I can't imagine the fear of wondering when, and if Anne Marie will have the same fate as yourself, but what you will never know that your little sis, minty saved your baby girl and took her to freedom along with most of your other sibling parents. And I just gave her honor Aunt Harriet honor for the things that she did for our family and bringing us and keeping us together keeping us safe, keeping us free. Wyatt said that she received a special commendation as a descendant of Harriet Tubman. For all of this year, the 200th birthday of Tubman will be honored at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park and Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland, and at the Harriet Tubman Museum and Educational Center run by dedicated volunteers in downtown Cambridge, Maryland. And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
5: Beyond the thunder and lightning, past the clouds, over the dark night, she reached up to the sky of stars and caught the red hot light of the North Star.
4: with blood so
5: free. she challenged the whip, the gun, the knife, she
6: challenged the fire pulled from the bodies of slaves made into laws, prisons, and courts.
2: The pain and the suffering of Ukrainian people, or as you said, Andy, the nine million Iraqis who are displaced internally or externally. And according to the Lancet Medical Journal, we don't know exactly what the numbers are who died. But by 2010, Lancet Medical Journal, prestigious UK-based science magazine, estimated that the number dead might be as many as a million who would not have otherwise died. That doesn't mean they all died from bombs and missiles and bullets, but they died because the war happened, just like in the Korean War in 1950 to 53. Four million Koreans died, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's almost one out of every five. And sadly, we don't mourn the Iraqis. We don't remember them. We don't think about them. There's not blazing headlines and constant coverage. And the same with the Yemenis and the Syrians. The Vietnamese, the Koreans, I mean, this is kind of a selective sort of coverage for people who are in suffering. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case as well? But how did we get here? 30 years ago, the Ukrainian, uh, the people in Ukraine, the people in Russia were one people. They were the Soviet people. And they had a long uh, tradition together. They shared many of the same benefits. Certainly they were part of an integrated, uh, planned economy. Ukraine was the breadbasket for the rest of the Soviet Union, and Ukraine benefited from oil that came from Azerbaijan, or from the Southern Asian republics, and the cotton and the textiles. I mean, it was an integrated, a uh, planned economy. And together, for instance, during World War II, Millions of Ukrainians and millions of Russians gave their lives to defeat fascism. And through their effort, they did defeat fascism. And the death camps came to an end in Eastern and Central Europe were liberated because they fought together. And when we think that today, Russians are killing Ukrainians and Ukrainians are killing Russians, we have to say this is a paramount uh, tragedy, one of the great catastrophes of modern times. And ever since the dissolution or the breakup of the Soviet Union or earlier Yugoslavia, these multinational, multi-ethnic republics, uh, the people reverted to uh, the same sort of barbarism of killing each other that had been dominant earlier. And this, I believe, is a consequence of the return of capitalism and the return of elites in different republics who have their own elite agendas and that's over control of markets and resources. But in the case of Russia, in the case of Russia in particular, for 30 years they have seen NATO, which is a US-led offensive military alliance, step-by-step incorporate all of the former republics of either the Soviet Union or the republics of Eastern and Central Europe that were the primary allies of the Soviet Union, and of the Russian people. And Russia, as we now know from Putin's recent speech, Putin now has admitted that in 1997, he asked Bill Clinton, or 1998, whether Russia could join NATO. Well, if the communists were gone, the communist party of the Soviet Union was gone, if it was no longer the Cold War, why not include Russia into NATO? and have a European-wide security arrangement. But the United States refused to incorporate Russia into NATO, but instead it kept expanding NATO from 14 members till today where there are 30 members. In 2008, this is the classic moment where things really change. And this is where we're gonna end up in a war in 2022. You have to really begin at this inflection moment in 2008, the Bucharest Summit of NATO, where the United States announces, to the surprise and shock of the Russians, but to the surprise of the Germans and French, too, that the United States intends to incorporate Ukraine and Georgia, two of the westernmost republics of the former Soviet Union, into NATO. And WikiLeaks' document, which I think many of us are now familiar with, is from William Burns, currently the director of CIA, who was at that time the U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation. He said by introducing the idea that Ukraine and Georgia would come into NATO, that it's a red line and it will lead to a crisis. And he was right. And we know he was right because WikiLeaks, thankfully, was able to publish the document. And about three months after that Bucharest summit, Russia moved into Georgia. There was the crisis in South Ossetia. The Russians made it clear that they weren't going to allow Georgia to come into NATO. And then, for the next six years, Ukraine was essentially a neutral country, de facto neutral. Yanukovych, who was the government, the president who was deposed in 2014 in the coup d'etat, he wasn't anti-EU and he wasn't anti-Russia. He said, we want a balance between Europe and Russia. We won't join NATO. He pledged that Ukraine would never join NATO, and he wanted to come into the EU, but not premised on the EU association agreement that was presented as an ultimatum in September, October 2013. That was an austerity agreement similar to what happened to the Greeks. Yanukovych said no to that, that's when the Maidan protests began. That's when Russia, I think, was preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics, I'm really worried about protests going to happen at the Sochi Olympics, not paying that much attention. And you had John McCain, Victoria Newland, Democrats, Republicans, the State Department, and the EU, all in Maidan Square, literally handing out cookies to the protesters. And there was an agreement, and a very important agreement signed on February 21st, 2014, where Yanukovych agreed to take the cops out of Maidan. They agreed that there would be early elections, which was a demand of the opposition, which meant Yanukovych was likely to lose. And that there would be a devolution of authority from the center to the regions, another demand of the opposition. So there was an agreement to end those protests, the police left Maidan, and the very next day, the very next day, Azov Brigade, the right sector, the people who are literally Nazis, and I want to make it clear, most Ukrainians are anti-Nazi, you know, the idea that this is like a Nazi country, not true, but there are Nazis in Ukraine, and they played a significant role in the coup. And they played a significant role in the paramilitary operations in the eastern part of the country. And they've been incorporated into the National Guard. At that moment, that was a sign to Russia that Ukraine would no longer be neutral. Ukraine shares a 1,200-long-mile border with Russia. If Ukraine is coming into NATO, that means the United States is going to put advanced short-range and mid-range missiles on Russia's border, and those missiles will have a flight time of three, four, or five minutes to their Russian targets. And what Putin said, and this is where we are today, and I'll try to get to the, to wrap this up, Putin said then, and he said especially in the last three months, you have to stop. You, NATO, cannot do what you're planning to do, which is either to incorporate Ukraine into NATO as a formal member or as a de facto member, and we're not going to let you put these kind of missiles and weapons, conventional and nuclear, on our 1,200-mile-long border just the way you wouldn't let us put those kind of missiles at the U.S.-Canadian or U.S.-Mexican border. And at the same time, Russia amassed 150,000 troops in Belarus and inside of Russia, making it clear that if the negotiations broke down, there was a plan B. And tragically, what we're witnessing today is plan B. And what I'm suggesting is in order to end the war, which is the most pressing thing, we can go into the streets and say, Russia, out of Ukraine. But will that make Russia come out of Ukraine for Americans to to say that? What the American people need to do is to say to our government, the government that speaks in our name, without our consent, that militarizes everything, that's insisted on taking NATO right up to the border of Russia, that we should stop and listen to what Russia was demanding, because those security guarantees are legitimate. They're legitimate. What's so wrong about being neutral? What's so wrong about being demilitarized? What's so wrong about not having short-range missiles in your country? Let's go to neutrality. Let's end the war by telling the government that speaks in our name to go back to the negotiating table, listen to the Russian demands, Make sure that Russia has that kind of a guarantee, because short of that, this war is going to go on and on and on. Thousands of Ukrainians will die. Thousands of Russians will die. We can't just say it's bad. We have to have a solution, and that is, I believe, the solution. Thank you. You watch the. Uh,
6: the joint session today with Zelensky speaking to Congress, and you know it's interesting how they're building him up to the level of Mandela, and you have this this idea of the bad guy and the good guy, the black hat, the white hat. I mean, it's so we've uh, we've seen this before play out. I know you put out a newsletter today in response to what happened with the uh, asks that uh, Zelensky had uh, to Congress. Can you please give us an overview of what is Pope pink viewpoint, uh, your viewpoint, on the way forward, how to stop this war. I know there's been a lot of suggestions that have been brought up here, some of them are not really realistic necessarily, I mean, as far as being able to get the people to the table and get the results that we need, but what do you think is the most effective way at this point, for folks in this room, folks that are watching, to bring this war to an end, as we all agree that's the number one interest at this point?
1: So um, it's a harder time to mobilize people. We were out there, uh, a group of us, this morning when Zelensky was addressing Congress. We were outside of Congress because we wanted to be there as the Congress people came in uh, with our signs uh, to show them that there were constituents who were pushing back on what they were going to be hearing and we wanted to be there after when they came out uh, because we know that this is such a delicate moment in history. I think many of us are very much against what our government has been doing to get us to this point, uh, whether it's talking about the violations of international law with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, or we're talking about the lack of compassion for other refugees, or we're talking about the weapon sales that we give to Saudi Arabia that allows the war in Yemen to keep going, or we're talking about the economic warfare that our government wages on people around the world uh, that kills more people probably than the, the military conflicts at this point. We have a lot of criticism of our own government, But right now, I think we have to get narrower and focus on the things that can stop this from leading into a World War III. Stop it from getting to a nuclear war. And so that's why when we were out there today, we weren't with our general kind of signs about US policy. We were specific about rejecting a no-fly zone, and rejecting the sending of warplanes. Because we knew that that is the moment that we're at right now, that can take us over the line uh, and get the US and NATO countries directly engaged in this war. And I think people in this group probably understand the gravity of a no-fly zone, but unfortunately the American people don't understand that. And that's because they're listening, a lot of them, to cable news which is egging this whole thing on, and is not educating people to understand that a no-fly zone needs a commitment to shoot down Russian planes. And it means that Russians would be shooting down US and NATO planes. And that means an absolute direct involvement of NATO countries in this war. And even people that we don't agree with on probably any like Marco Rubio have come out on public television to say no-fly zone lays the foundations for World War III. And we've seen that the majority of people in Congress, at least as of before yesterday, before today, agreed that they were against a no-fly zone, and the Biden administration has been against a no-fly zone. They've also been against this idea of sending big jets uh, that Poland originally wanted to do, sending them through Germany and having the US being the ones that then was getting them directly into the conflict was also a bad idea. So on those two things, we're supportive of the administration, but we knew that today when Zelensky came, there was gonna be a lot more pressure to cross those lines. And there is, as a result, a lot more pressure. And we heard and talked to Congress people who are feeling that pressure, knowing what is right from a standpoint of what will be best to try to end this war, but knowing that they're feeling pressure from their constituents who are getting it from not just Zelensky's talk, but from the cable news networks so we're in this moment that I think is so, so, so critical. And I wish that instead of 30 people out there this morning, we were thousands of people out there. But for anybody who has gone out in the last 21 days to a protest on this issue, you will find that we were overwhelmed by Ukrainian-Americans and others who have and righteous compassion for the Ukrainian people and what they are suffering, but has led them to ask for more direct U.S. involvement, more militarism, more weapons, which we believe just means more prolongation of the war and more death of Ukrainians. Uh, but I in, in places around the country, then where we're encouraging them to go out to the streets and see well, we we'll know out to the streets, but there were all these Ukrainians. And it was the first time a friend said to me, first time he'd been in a, a pro-war, anti-war protest. <laughs> so it's been difficult, but I think we are not doing our job as citizens if we're not able to mobilize better than. to find our allies in this moment. And this is something we've talked about for so long, but this is a moment when the environmental movement understands that all they've been working for, or all we've been working for, because I think we consider ourselves part of the environmental movement, all the gains that we have been making are going backwards right now. When there's pressure to reauthorize the Keystone pipeline, when there's pressure to give more permits for drilling, when there is the U.S. going to the Saudis and saying, pump more oil, or going to the United Arab Emirates and saying, pump more oil. We need to be united as a movement of environmentalists and a movement of peace people. And when we say peace people, we have got to incorporate the anti-nuke movement into that. We've got to be together with the people, like people in this room right here who devoted their lives, On the prohibition of nuclear weapons, a reality. And if in 1982 a million people got on the streets to say abolish nuclear weapons, why can't we get a million people out on the streets to say abolish nuclear weapons? So we've got to do our job and do it a hell of a lot better on all of these fronts. To say, don't drag us into World War III, no nuclear weapons, and to say that this is exactly the time to put our money and our energy into the Green New Deal, into the green future of this planet. So let's see how we can bring these movements together at this moment to say, no war.
0: was Medea Benjamin, founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace. And before that, Brian Becker, national organizer for the Answer Coalition. They both spoke at Busboys and Poets in Northwest D.C. on Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. The program was titled Ukraine. How did we get here and possible solutions? We'll post our complete audio from the program on our Patreon page. This is on the ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iveram. While Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed Congress via video link on Wednesday, pleading for the U.S. and NATO to implement a so-called no-fly zone in this country, in effect, enter the war and alarmingly create a scenario for World War III. Here to discuss this week's developments and also Ukraine's connections to fascists for this month's episode of the F-word is our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Gerald Horne, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, though, as you heard, Zelensky's dangerous plea for a no-fly zone continues to be rejected by the Biden administration. His emotional speech uh, punctuated with these out-of-sync references to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and also showing a very graphic video, war video, it still ratcheted up this drive here in Washington to escalated war rather than to diplomatic resolution. So first, I just want to get your reaction to the speech.
5: Well, obviously, it was prepared in part by a number of those CIA agents who are now crawling around Kiev, Ukraine. And it's interesting to note as well that Mr. Zelensky has done a 180, that if he had taken the position previously, before February 24th, that he's taking now, there probably would not be any conflict. What I mean is, a few days ago on This Week with ABC, he said that he had, quote, cooled off, unquote, with regard to NATO membership. And if he had said that before February 24th, probably the other issues could have been negotiated. And it's also curious the way he's being depicted and portrayed uh, in the U.S. press. Uh, You have mentioned previously the connections of certain forces in Ukraine to fascism. And of course, that ties into our F-word concept, which we'll be discussing later. But it's remarkable how the mainstream press is using the simple fact that Mr. Zelensky is Jewish to dismiss that very important issue. It's almost like saying that just because Barack Obama was black, that the United States did not inherit a white supremacy between 2008 and 2016. I mean, it barely passes the giggle test. And in some ways, he's the ultimate fall guy. What it reminds me of is that one of the reasons the British Empire was able to rise to prominence, if not world dominance, was that it oftentimes used other nations to fight as battles. I mean, for example, in the 16th century, when Britain was rising, it chose to fight Spain to the last Dutchman. And we all know that what helped to make Britain a major power in Southern Africa during World War I was because it relied very heavily upon troops and fighters from what is now Pakistan and what is now independent India. And so the United States has decided that it's going to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And apparently, Mr. Zelensky is willing to go along with that demented scheme. But of course, uh, he has uh, many enablers. uh, I'm thinking of the Republicans who have been caught flat-footed in a sense, because Mr. Biden has been able to outflank them on the right with his bellicosity and warmongering. The Republicans do not like to be outflanked on the right. And so now they're trying to get to the right of Mr. Biden. And so you have the spectacle of Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who's in a traffic jam right now because his fellow Floridians, including Donald G. Trump and Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis, the governor, all plan to run for president. So he has to somehow distinguish himself. So he's calling for all manner of upping the ante, uh, no-fly zones, uh, flying combat planes uh, into the theater of war. It's as if the question of World War III is not taken very seriously uh, in Washington, D.C.
0: Can we play the clip of Zelensky asking for the no-fly zone? Sure. Here it goes. This is a
3: terror that Europe has not seen, has not seen for 80 years, and we are asking for a reply, for an answer uh, to this uh, terror from the whole world. Is this a lot to ask for? To create a no-fly zone zone over Ukraine to save people—is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would not be able to terrorize our free cities.
0: Yeah. So that was Zelensky speaking through an interpreter on Wednesday uh, in his address to Congress. And I wanted to play it because it also, uh, in addition to painting this really scary scenario that maybe lawmakers and most Americans don't seem to understand, that a no-fly zone is a dangerous proposition. And we've talked about it in terms of what happened in Libya. And uh, in other conflicts. But in addition to that, I, I think you may have noticed he is continuing this trope uh, during this whole coverage of the Ukraine conflict of saying that this is the most serious conflict in Europe in 80 years. And most of the mainstream media very conveniently forgets NATO's attack on Yugoslavia when, what, 28,000 bombs in over several months. So I wanted to get you to react to that.
5: Well, Mr. Zelensky is sort of a descendant of Ronald Reagan. Both are actors. uh, Both uh, know how to or knew, in the case of Reagan, knew how to read their lines very well. And what's curious is how his image has been refashioned. In the new Washington tell-all memoir, I'm thinking of Marie uh, Yovanovitch's memoir about her time as the chief U.S. envoy in Ukraine, recalled that she runs afoul of Donald J. Trump and becomes an effective witness against him in impeachment hearings and, and all the rest. Well, Mr. Zelensky comes across rather badly, uh, quite frankly, in the memoir, but all of a sudden now he's the latest uh, hero of the United States of America. And what's also uh, remarkable about uh, this present crisis that we're now enduring is that in some ways, the fate of the planet depends upon lawyers at the State Department agreeing with lawyers at the foreign ministry in Moscow. What I mean is the determination has been made that the United States cannot be considered a co-belligerent in this conflict, even though it's shipping in an arsenal of machine guns and Stinger missiles and Javelin anti-tank missiles, et cetera. But another lawyer could look at that scenario and say, hell yes, the United States is a co-belligerent, which would then uh, mean that Moscow could attack the U.S. bases, uh, one of which was supposedly going to be named for Trump uh, in Poland. And that could lead to an escalating scenario that could lead to a nuclear exchange and perhaps the extinction of all humanity. So uh, let us hope at least that these lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic are sharing notes.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because uh, earlier this week when I was talking on the socialist program, played a clip of Amy Klobuchar in Poland You know, talking about the fact that she still wanted these planes, she she either wanted Poland or somehow someone connected to NATO to get some planes into Ukraine. And the Biden administration has been obviously resisting that because they understand what you're talking about, this framework or this definition of what does it mean for the U.S. to be engaged or NATO to be engaged in the war? And so she talked about, well, you know, we could send some drones instead. And almost on cue, I think on Wednesday or Thursday, Biden announced that this new package of 800 million in military aid to Ukraine would include 100 US drones. And obviously, when we were having that discussion, we were saying, well, what is the difference between a drone and a plane? If it means that you are. Entering the war. You are entering in the war in the, in the airspace at that. So, yes, I mean, I definitely take your point about the lawyers deciding the fate of the planet, which is scary. But you were going to say something about the Black Congressional Caucus.
5: Well, it, it's quite disappointing, uh, particularly those of us who recall the past history of the caucus. Recall that the late congressman from Detroit, John Conyers, before he passed away and, and before he left Congress, uh, he was reeling against the Azov Battalion uh, in Ukraine, which we all know are neo-fascists. Now we have the spectacle of even Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who stood tall in 2001 during the conflict in Afghanistan, has now decided to go along with the warmongers. I heard uh, Congressman Al Green of Houston, an upstanding member so-called of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, basically echoing her. But I think it's fair to say, too, that it's a reflection of how times have changed. What I mean is the predecessor of Congresswoman Barbara Lee representing Oakland Berkeley, as you well know, was Congressman Ronald V. Dellums, the late Congressman Ronald V. Dellums, who was very close to the Black Panther Party, very close to Bobby Seale, a co-founder of the Black Panther Party, which we know was subjected to murderous liquidation by the FBI and other U.S. agents. Uh, We also know that Congressman John Conyers was very close to the left, as was his fellow Detroiter, uh, Congressman George Crockett, the late George Crockett, who you may recall was the lawyer for the Communist Party. And in fact, his defense of them was so vigorous that he served a federal term uh, for contempt of court, a court that deserved contempt, by the way. And so times have changed. Those sorts of uh, left-wing lawyering and organizations like the Black Panther Party have been driven out of business. So perhaps it's no surprise that the Congressional Black Caucus of today is a far cry from the Congressional Black Caucus, even of the recent past.
0: Well, I knew I I had the, the task of kind of including Zelensky's speech, but also including this month's episode of The F Word. And I, th- I thought it actually would be a tough combination. But then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi introduced Zelensky using the phrase Slava Ukraina. <laughs> and she wanted the audience, the Congress people gathered to respond Glory to Ukraine. And this is a call and response made famous by the infamous Ukrainian Nazi Stepan Bandera. And Then anti-fascists online, they began commenting on this singular Iron Cross, like similar to the Nazi Germany Iron Cross, very popular with far right militias in Ukraine on Zelensky's T-shirt. He had an olive drab T-shirt, kind of like a muscle shirt, I guess. And they had this it had this Iron Cross. And so people started chatting about that. So with those two things, I, I felt like, okay, I can get into Uh, And, you know, this wasn't really mentioned on mainstream media and corporate media. And even some commenters noticed how they would put their words like on CNN, they would they would cover up that Iron Cross in terms of how they laid out their their video image of him. So. With all that happening, I thought that was the perfect segue to talk about how, you know, mainstream media, just in terms of how they covered his speech, they're still not talking about the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine with the muscle supplied by far-right Nazi elements there, the 14,000 people killed in Eastern Ukraine since then, and ongoing shelling in Eastern Ukraine. And this is largely of the ethnic Russian population. And just the existence of Nazis, like you mentioned, the Azov Battalion, now actually the Azov Brigade incorporated into the Ukrainian army. And I've even heard analysts like former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter say that uh, these far-right factions have threatened Zelensky and prevented him from implementing peace accords with eastern Ukraine. That would have brought you know peace in this last eight years, and would have definitely avoided this current war. And that there are actually similar threats that he'd better not come to any type of a ceasefire or arrangement with Russia. So anyway, that's my segue into the F word this month. Well,
5: even more disturbing, perhaps, is the fact that in Ukraine, in the Zelensky circle, at least, there has been a salutations directed at the fascist hero, so-called, of the 1940s, speaking of Stefan Bandera. I've seen his image in, all over buildings uh, in uh, Kiev. But what is even more chilling is that we know as we speak, according to even the mainstream press, that white supremacists of various stripes are pouring into Poland and into Ukraine. Marry that fact with the point that the United States policy is to create a kind of Afghanistan for Russia. That is to say, recall what happened in the 1980s when you had these religious zealots, uh, such as Osama bin Laden from Saudi Arabia, uh, such as these forces from Algeria who flooded into Afghanistan And then after doing their foul deeds, went back home, such as to Algeria, where Algeria was on fire for a number of years as a direct result. And so when they talk about creating an Afghanistan for Russia in 2022, 2023 going forward, what they're basically suggesting is that this time there will be Euro-Americans flooding into Poland and into Eastern Europe, getting combat experience. Recall as well that Mr. Biden is sending machine guns and all manner of small weapons, uh, not to mention these uh, drones, uh, some of which can fit into backpacks that can bring down helicopters, if not planes that are about to land. And so you have the prescription for these Euro-American rights getting combat training in Eastern Europe, bringing back their talents, quote unquote, to the United States, creating all manner of havoc. And at the same time, you see that what's happening in Europe is that uh, this refugee problem is now in motion. Now, we know that there is a difference between refugees from North Africa and West Asia coming to Europe and refugees from Ukraine. The press has made that clear. That
0: Oh, yes. And in the UK right now, you can get 350 pounds a month for uh, housing a Ukrainian refugee, not so for people coming across the channel, right, from Libya and other points south where NATO has uh, destabilized.
5: But there's still a distinct possibility that even Ukrainian refugees may be fodder for the creation or the acceleration of these uh, ultra-rightist trends. Mm -hmm. And this should be of particular interest, I think, in this country, because we know about these transatlantic networks. We know, for example, that the insurrectionists, so-called, on January 6th were in close contact with their comrades in Western Europe. We already know that the neo-fascist alternative for Germany, a party, Uh, is on the march, and that Eric Zemmour, the ultra-rightist of France, who is running for president in the election in the next uh, few weeks, is doing quite well in the polls. So uh, I think that in terms of this F-word segment, uh, we have more than enough to chew on.
0: Right. So- but what I wanted to add for that was uh, not only in terms of Euro-Americans getting these types of skills and having these types of weapons that, that they may leave with one movie that I watch is Syriana. And it really it it talks about like just what can happen with one errant missile. Right. And apparently uh, the New York Times reported last week that we were seven seventeen thousand 17,000 javelin missiles into Ukraine There was also a report this week of a drone, an armed drone, uh, crashing in Croatia. They don't know where it came from. They don't know what its intended target was, but it provided the specter of weapons proliferating throughout Europe, really, very easily, uh, not to mention farther than that. But I wanted to ask you about Russia and China. There have been many analysts who I respect, such as yourself, who talk about how this Ukraine conflict is obviously NATO's attempt to get to Russia, but also some feel that it's an attempt to really get to China. We know that on today, as we go to broadcast, Biden is supposed to meet with President Xi of China, and this is after a an apparently very intense session between Jake Sullivan and his counterpart in China earlier this week. But they're obviously trying to uh, press China because uh, China is maintaining a close relationship with Russia and not stepping away from the partnership that they announced uh, during the Beijing Olympics. that that it was rock solid and that no no third party would be able to get in between them, I think they said.
5: Well, you're referring to that seven-hour meeting that took place in Rome between Jake Sullivan and his counterpart from the political bureau of the Chinese Communist Party, described by the U.S. side as being a, quote, intense, unquote, meeting. I assume that the same will hold true for the Friday Today telephone call between Mr. Biden and President Xi, recall as well that on February 25th on this particular program, uh, I made it clear that this crisis in Eastern Europe is just a dress rehearsal for a heightened cold war with the People's Republic of China, but because confronting China frontally and directly without any pretext means confronting Tesla and Microsoft and Apple and GM and KFC and Starbucks, that this confrontation through indirection through Moscow is the preferred option. China is clearly in the crosshairs because if they observe sanctions, which I don't think they will since the sanctions do not have the imprimatur of the United Nations, but if they observe sanctions, that means that they will be weakening their partner, speaking of Russia. And if they don't observe sanctions, that means that they too will be sanctioned. Recall that it was not so long ago that capturing headlines was this idea that China was perpetrating genocide. And in the Financial Times, uh, just the other day, I noticed that a US commentator was suggesting that if Putin is a war criminal then Mr. Xi is perpetrating genocide, and so therefore his regime needs to be subjected to confrontation and to sanction. However, I think that Washington may be overreacting, to put it mildly, to the fact that most sober analysts agree that China is in the passing lane and that if present trends continue, it will be further ahead than it is now. And you see hints of that already in the financial press when you see discussions between Saudi Arabia and China in terms of the sale of oil, not in dollars, but in the Chinese currency. Uh, You see this in the commentary by Pepe Escobar, who routinely writes for the Asia Times, uh, an organ which I recommend, by the way, who talked about this recent meeting of the EEU the European, excuse me, the Eurasian Economic Union, which is dominated by Moscow and includes many of the Central Asian Republics, and now is co-opting China, and how uh, they too plan to conduct trade not using the U.S. dollar. We see that with regard to India, one of Moscow's uh, longest-term allies, which has been talking about buying energy that the United States is turning its back on, but buying the energy in Indian rupees and then, of course, having other trade in Russian rubles. And so there may be a fast break away from the dollar or de-dollarization, as the economists call it. That may be the ultimate issue, the ultimate story of this entire crisis, which has led some analysts to suggest that no matter how things eventuate, that in the short term, China will be a winner. And in the long term, China will be a winner. Although much of it depends upon what the European Union decides to do. And of course, thus far, they've been a giant with a feet of clay uh, being dragged into this conflict, uh, which will basically strain the EU budget, will mean they have to find new sources for energy uh, other than Russia, and helping to validate in a paradoxical way the point made by John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor under Donald J. Trump, who said that Mr. Trump saw the EU as the number one threat to U.S. domination behind China. But somehow they've fallen into this trap, and I guess they'll have to pay a heavy price as well.
0: Well, events and news are rapidly unfolding, and so we're continuing to cover the story as best we can here from Washington, D.C. And I thank you for joining us to discuss all these fast moving events. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground. ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We'll post our complete audio from the program, Ukraine, How Did We Get Here?, and possible solutions with Brian Becker, Phyllis Bennis and Medea Benjamin on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash on the ground show, but you can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website. We maintain on theground and you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at on the ground show, our podcast, on the Ground with Esther Ivarum is also on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included The North Star by Fred Foss featuring Gaston Neal, End of the Line remixed by Fotech, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you so much to listeners who have gotten on board with us and join our Patreon page. We are a totally independent operation, independent journalism uh, produced here from Washington, DC. We don't have any corporate backing. You see, we don't have any advertising and we don't want any. We want to be supported by our listeners and by the people. So please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash On The Ground Show and uh, become a member on Patreon. Uh, that's the best way because I can send you automatically an email every time we post the show, whenever we post bonus content. You can also go to the website On onthegroundshow.org and click on the Donate Now or Donate uh, Support button and it will tell you all ways you can give, including PayPal, And anybody who uh, wrote a check and sent it to us, we apologize. We had some problems with our mailing system. And so if you received a return check, please return it back and at that same address and we will get it. We've gotten everything straightened out. Anyway, thanks so much, everyone, for listening and supporting. And can't wait to bring you next week's show.